Hello everyone and welcome to the Artistic Futures podcast. My name is Marie and in this series I will be meeting a range of people who work in opera and are keen to share their passion with the next generation. From singers to conductors, directors to composers, you will get an insight into how a range of artists built on their careers, turning what they enjoyed doing and were good at into a profession. It will also be full of useful tips and advice for those of you who would be tempted to give it a go. So, let's get started. For this episode, I headed to the Royal Academy of Music in London to meet conductor Sean Edwards. A celebrated conductor of orchestra and operatic repertoire, Sean has been head of conducting at the Academy since 2013. She studied at the Royal Northern College of Music and won the first prize in the 1984 Leeds International Conducting Competition. Over the years, she has worked with many of the world's leading orchestras and has conducted numerous world premieres. Shan met her operatic debut in 1986, conducting Kurt Weill's Mahogany at the Scottish Opera. Two years later, she was the first female conductor engaged at the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden. With Opera North, she has more recently conducted Jana Czech's Katia Kabanova. Hi, Shan. Thank you so much for meeting me here today. We are at the Royal Academy where you teach. Um, I wanted to start this conversation by asking you if you remember when you started being interested in classical music and maybe in opera as well. And when was the time you realized that you would want to become a conductor? I was very lucky in that my parents had a piano in the house. So although they would always say they weren't particularly musical, Um, they loved music and they'd got this family heirloom. So when I was about six, I remember saying to my mum, I really want to learn how to play the piano. And she was a bit anxious that um, this very fierce local piano, piano teacher, why a piano teacher so fierce, um, would put me off. But anyway, I had lessons and I loved it and I got going. And um, I think then probably a couple of years later, my dad worked in industry but he used to come home in the evenings and he got a bit obsessive about certain bits of music and he used to put music on his bush record player um, over and over and over and I think I was probably asleep listening to things like Borchak's Symphony Number no. 9 and there are parts of that music that really called me into a world that I of course as a child didn't know anything about but that I felt attracted to and then when I was a bit older, um, my school, which wasn't at all a musical school, it was a rural school in Sussex with, I think, a couple of triangles and a broken tambourine, frankly, <laughs> and we used to have awful sort of class singing, um, but they arranged um, one or two trips to Ernest Reed concerts on Saturday mornings at the festival And of course, the great thrill was the train ride and going up with a group of kids and yeah. the festival hall itself. <laughs> um, but uh, it was amazing to, to hear the orchestra. And I think that's where I... what I don't know what the reason was particularly, but that's where I developed the idea I'd like to learn the French horn. All right. And 
I didn't know anything about this. And again, my parents were very humble and sort of you know, said, well, we don't know anything about this. Um, luckily for me and my sisters, my dad then got a job in the South Midlands and he decided that the family should move to Oxfordshire and that we would go to school in Oxford. And I think the only reason I got into this very academic school was because I said, I want to learn the French horn and I like climbing trees. And <laughs> the headmistress at the time, who was this wonderful lady called Mary Warnock, um, she somehow recognized, I think, you know, somebody who was anxious to try things out. And she herself adored music. And so um, there I was at the very academic Oxford High School and I was able to have horn lessons. And so I started and I think for anyone learning an instrument at the beginning, you know, you have those first months or years where you just feel in a desert basically and the thing doesn't work and you can't make it work and it's the whole thing's a mystery. Um, but gradually, um, I think, you know, something gradually came together. And then the breakthrough for me was when I was 13 and my teacher said, right, why don't you play in the Oxfordshire County Youth Orchestra, Junior Orchestra? And I played in this orchestra and it was just a revelation. I loved it. I absolutely started living for this yeah. Saturday and also meeting lots of people who were not at my school. And who um, like to just, who uh, yeah. had the same passion yeah, for music. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, or, you that's... know, even didn't like music, but, but we're playing it anyway, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we're kind of in it. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, it started off this thing um, as well of having a much wider range of friends. And I gradually moved up to the main orchestra and playing fourth horn in Sibelius's second symphony at the end of that year, probably still age 13, was, you know, just a, a massive moment for me. And then that led me to practice more and go on and develop. And I was at this very musical school. They had loads of school orchestras but they still had so many people learning instruments because it was this amazing time in the 1970s when the government funded every child to learn an instrument. Yes. Yeah. It was incredible. Yeah. So every school, when you know people were coming out of school at the end of the day, everybody would be carrying an instrument of some kind. It was yeah, just it was amazing. So there, even with four orchestras, there still were people who couldn't get into the orchestra. So I had a wind band um, for some of the countless flutes and people who weren't in an ensemble and I used to arrange music for them and I, I loved jazz so I remember it was Glenn Miller yeah I think I must have got the music from somewhere and then I used to arrange it so that if one of the players only had kind of C, D and E on their flute um, they would get those notes as they went past yeah. as it were um, and it was it was a brilliant experience um, and we ended up giving a concert and uh, you know, it was all part of um, me being very actively sort of involved in lots of musical projects at school. Of course, the schoolwork went down the drain, but I gradually realised I wanted to be a horn player, actually. I wanted to keep going and play in orchestras, and I started having lessons in London um, with a fantastic teacher, Iva James. But my dream of coming to the Royal Academy, funny enough, to study horn was punctured when he suddenly announced he wasn't going to be teaching at the Royal Academy anymore but he would be teaching at the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester. Mm -hmm. And I'm a real southerner, and I'd never <laughs> been further north than Birmingham before. And there I was suddenly, you know, going to study in Manchester with this guy. And um, I went and I was working on the horn, but I'd, 
at that moment, and this is something that, again, for everybody who's learning music, you can have setbacks. I think classical music particularly can be really tough um, technically, and you can get yourself tied up in knots. And I started getting lots of problems with my embouchure in my mouth, and I was pressing too hard on my lips and couldn't get the notes to speak properly. And my teacher said, right, Char, we're going back to long notes. We're going to sort it all out. Of course, I was really crestfallen. I was first year in this marvellous music college and I couldn't really play this one thing I'd gone to do. Oh, that must have been so frustrating. It's awful. And everybody else is playing up and down the instrument oh. and, and I'm going... <laughs> so, um, and horn players will understand very much what I'm talking about. But um, So while I was doing that, I thought, I must do some music. I need music. So I invited some people I'd just got to know to play in a wind octet. And I would organize everything and so um, it meant that I would direct it um, and that started to be rather fun and so the conducting which I'd explored quite a lot while I was a schoolgirl at Oxford High um, then went forward at the Royal Northern and lovely um, Timothy Rainish who was head of wind brass and percussion at the time um, encouraged me so uh, I was often you know allowed to assist or do things um, in addition to my horn studies. And although the horn playing did come back, eventually um, I realised that the conducting bug had really yeah. bitten. Yeah. So I stayed on at the RNCM after I'd done my undergrad degree on horn as a conductor. And then I went further um, to study in the Soviet Union, actually, which was the place where I did yeah. my sort of most intense training, if you like. Wow. So there we are. That's, that's, that's yeah. a great story. So, so it's not really... Something that kind of developed little by little rather than, than a vocation to start with, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. interesting. Um, I was wondering if at the time there were conductors who inspired you, and particularly, I mean, I'm interested, at the time there must not have been that many female conductors around. Were, were, were there any female conductors you could go and speak to for advice at the time? Well, actually, funnily enough, um, Jane Glover fantastic Jane Glover, who's about 10 years older than me, was at that time, in the 70s and 80s, really breaking through. She had her own television series at one point, but she was rather a distant figure um, and, you know, doing very high-powered things, so I didn't really dare talk to her, but Simon Rattle, um, in a way, I guess, felt a bit closer in that um, he was showing that you could be young and enthusiastic and still be a good conductor. And I think that was the main thing that seemed to hold back young people, was this idea that you had to look like Leonard Bernstein or uh, Herbert von Karajan, you know, with a sort of shock of white hair and be very, yes. very erudite. And, um, you know, that's not to say that someone like Simon wasn't and isn't very erudite, but I think he was showing that there were other ways of being a conductor that could also be really interesting. But I think being a conductor people come to it from loads of different routes. Yeah. Uh, it's the one, perhaps, musical discipline that doesn't have a very specific training uh, route, if you like, in. Yeah. Um, so people can be members of orchestras who then move into conducting fantastic pianists who play for singers, go into conducting uh, people do you, who... Do you yeah, think this might be linked as well with, with the music training we get? Because I, I, I studied music in Belgium and never got 
the opportunity to, to try conducting as a teenager and maybe later in life I was a bit like reluctant to get into it because you, yeah. get, you, know, you get more nervous and about absolutely, it. Absolutely, kind of yeah. I think when you're 15 you don't care yeah, that's when it. you're 25 yeah. it's like, Ugh. Yeah. But I think, um, yeah, one of the lovely things about the chaos of music making in Britain is that there is a lovely do-it-yourself attitude mm -hmm. to young people doing um, projects and... I really love that, and I think especially for young conductors, um, often you know people will have been through university and put on concerts and conducted anything that was going past, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's all part of learning and developing um, a range of skills that you need, actually. So yeah, it can be helpful to do that. Yeah, I imagine that conducting an opera requires quite different skills to conducting a symphony orchestra, for instance. Um, Would you like to tell us a bit more maybe about the kind of skills that you need to do yeah. that kind of work? So opera is an amazing art form because it brings together, of course, all the visual elements and the music and the design and you're trying to get everything to line up and, and work successfully in a production. And whereas in a concert format you go in and maybe you have one day, two days, three days of rehearsal and then you perform... In an opera rehearsal, especially for a new production, you might be rehearsing for six weeks. So it's about putting all the elements together systematically, one thing after another. The singers come, you learn the music with the singers, they're then working on the production, the conductors are learning the production. Uh, sometimes by that time you're changing things because you realize, oh, you know, this character actually wasn't as angry as I thought at this moment because there's something going to happen later and the director wants something else and we're not going to go so fast there as a result. You know, there are all sorts of things that mean collaborating is really fun, actually, and developing um, your ideas about the piece can be, you know, very multifaceted, which I, which I really love. And in the end, I think conducting an opera, it's about... Of course, being able to inspire and um, set on fire the performance, but you have less maneuverability because you've got so many people involved and so many things happening that what you're trying to do is get the performance that everybody's worked towards to work. You can't really do anything um, too uh, last minute, as it were. Whereas with an orchestra and certainly with smaller groups of people, especially if you know each other well, um, there's more possibility to be a bit free. I suppose, yeah, you can explore things yeah. a bit more. Yeah. yeah. So the, all the exploration, basically, I guess, with the opera, all exploration is done before you get to the first night. And then, of course, as you do a run of performances, things shift and change and people discover new things. Um, but, um, yeah, with a concert or a series of concerts, you can actually, yeah, do things a little bit differently throughout the series of performances. Is there a piece or an opera that you've particularly loved conducting in your career I'm sure there are loads but, <laughs> but if you can think of one that you particularly well one of the very first operas I did which was at short notice oddly enough because Simon Rattle had to cancel at the last minute um, was Mahagoni by Kurt Weill mm. and it's a fantastic piece because it's a nice thing to your, your love to jazz as well yes exactly it? so it's jazz inspired it's got the most amazing um, collection of instruments it's an orchestra but it's got saxophones and a guitar in it and Uh, lots of drums and it's a really wonderfully tough piece about basically how rubbish capitalism is and you know what we've got to do to move away from that but it's also very very touching it's got an incredibly moving human story 
But I think the other pieces that I've really loved most are Janáček operas. And you know, when um, I came to do Katya with yes. Opera North, that meant an yeah. awful lot. And it was so beautiful. Janáček's music yeah. is just gorgeous. I, I love um, all the folk melodies that come into it. And yeah, nice. and also the fact that he seems to just really understand the situation of women and is so eloquent and touching and angry actually also on their behalf as to what happens to them in some of his Yeah, operas. the psychology of the character yeah. is really, yeah. really clever, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. Is there a piece that you've never got the chance to conduct that you would love to in the future? Well, actually, talking about women um, in opera, I, I would love to do Tosca one time. Mm. And I know I came to see Anthony Hemus doing um, the wonderful Tosca production Opera North has. Yeah. And I was thinking, oh, wow, this is so great. And, um, yeah, I think that's a fantastic opera, actually. And although, you know, there were tremendous critics, weren't there, at the time who said it was a shabby little shocker and, you know, all the rest of it. Actually, I think the character of Tosca and... Again, the way the awful situation, which, you know, we totally understand, you know, people go through it to this day, um, is something that, you know, every time you see it as well, even though you know how the opera ends, you still think right you up to the hope. end. Yes, you right. Hope. You do, you really do, <laughs> that, you know, maybe Cabo de Ross is going to get up this time, you know, and they'll be okay, <laughs> and they're going to go off, and it's going to be all right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, gosh, it makes me shiver just to think about yeah. it, actually. I love Tosca. It's one of my favorite. Maybe one last question in this section of the interview is, what has the biggest challenge be in your career, and whether you think that the fact that you came into conducting as a woman uh, has created more, more challenges in your career or if it's been actually a positive thing? I think there are positive and negative things. Um, I think probably when I was starting out, some people were you know, interested that you know, here was somebody, um, young female, who seemed to be able to do it, so let's give them a chance. That, that I can absolutely see that. On the other hand, I think it's still to this day difficult for people and managements um, sometimes to perhaps trust women in any um, position of authority, not just conductors. Um, and I think that's still something that we as women have to work on and develop. And I think it's coming and there are more and more women now in you know, bigger positions, if you like, um, who show that you also, you don't have to just sort of like Margaret Thatcher, you know, they said she was more male than her male colleagues oh, yeah. in some way, but you don't have to behave like that. And I think that's been a big change in the way conductors behave generally anyway. Um, and again, that was something that was led very much by people like Simon Rattle, who refused, and Bernard Heiting, actually, wonderful and, you know, much beloved Bernard, um, who refused to be the autocrat on the podium, you know, and really wanted to be the collaborators and the enablers of performances and working with the players. Um, and I think that is very significant, actually, in the way that conducting and working in these big organisations um, has changed. Um, and so I think that allows women to feel that perhaps they can come into these larger jobs now and feel um, that they can be themselves, you know, that there is that element. I mean, you've still got to be tough and you've got to make difficult decisions. Um, there's no getting away from that. But I think um, the way you behave, perhaps, isn't quite so much called into question. And I look back now and I think, oh, yeah, you know, at first, in the first years that I was working, I never 
thought somebody being difficult was because I was female. Now I look back and I think, of course, you know, this, that person was just having a real problem that they were being conducted by someone who was young and a woman, you know, and they were just making life really horrible as a result. Yeah, so. I mean, it's, it's, you know, like you are, you are in front of all these players and you are the authority, so yes. I suppose yeah. it's, it's... They've got to yeah. trust you and, it's, you know... That's it. Yeah, sometimes. And, and look, it's the same for men too. It, conducting can be a very capricious and difficult job and you just accept that with some groups the chemistry isn't going to work and you know you just say thank you and at the end of those concerts you're going to walk away but I think uh, yeah it's, it can be looking back you know there were moments that were probably particularly tough This was a clever little meeting place out by the in the garden so I imagined, but what if your mother should find you out? Oh, it would just never occur to her. And she searched her heavy sleeper. But suppose the devil should wake her from sleep. No matter, the door that leads from the Head of conducting at the Royal Academy for uh, eight years now, and I know you've been involved in a lot of other education projects. Has education and teaching always been, been part of what you do as well? So I had the most amazing opportunity. I went to the Soviet Union in 1983 completely uh, sort of not knowing what to expect, but I had had this amazing summer course with the conductor Naimi Yervi who said to me when I said, I asked him, how can I conduct like you? You know, typical 21-year-old brazen, <laughs> marvelous, I want to conduct like you. Um, and he said, well, of course, you have to study in Leningrad, as it was, St. Petersburg. Uh, okay, right. And this was the time, of course, when um, still, you know, Eastern Europe and yeah. Russia were behind the Iron Curtain and the Soviet Union was very powerful. But the British Council ran a scheme of exchanging students between the Soviets and the British. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, they did yeah. that um, because there was no money exchange, you know, so they used to send quite a few, about 10 people who were doing historical research and then they used to send one or two musicians every year. Anyway, I applied and they said, okay, we'll send you. And I ended up in Leningrad and I ended up studying with this marvellous teacher who was head of the department there, um, Ilya Musin. And he had already been teaching for 50 years and basically it was such a wonderful, musical, supportive, but challenging class and I really flourished there. And when I came back, of course, um, other young conductors said, well, what did you learn? You know, tell us, show us what you did. <laughs> so I began to explain a little bit about the technical training that I'd been offered. It just meant that, yeah, people asked me every now and then for lessons. And then um, I talked for a while at the Guildhall School of Music. And then, um, yeah, I came here to uh, work as head of conducting at the Royal Academy. And it's always been a part of wanting to share what I feel so fortunate to have been given 
by Musin because he was so generous as well. Um, you know, if ever I was preparing for something, and of course, it was the first Leeds Conductors Competition that started me off um, at the end of my first year of study with him. I would go to his flat three o'clock in the afternoon and I'd press his doorbell, which would be his signal because he was in his 80s having a rest to get up. Mm-hmm. And then he'd come to the door and um, I'd do an hour or two of conducting and then he and his wife would feed me. They'd give me high tea. You know, it was lovely, absolutely lovely. And they'd sort of take care of me. And I was gradually being able to speak Russian and talk to them. Yeah, I was going to ask you where, where, where the, the, course, yes. the lessons in, in they Russian. They were all in Russian. Oh, wow. Although, you know, Musin was one of those people. He said, well, of course, I've read all of Shakespeare and all of Dickens in English, you know. And then you say, you know, what do you think of this passage in Macbeth? And I'd be going, oh, my God. <laughs> so, um, you're fantastically uh, cultured people, actually. Mm. Um, but he spoke a little bit of English and, yeah. you know, they gradually um, helped me to speak Russian. And I had Russian lessons um, at the conservatory. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's all been, yeah, part of wanting to share that legacy, really. And do you feel that, like, the fact that you are teaching it is also informing your practice as a conductor? Oh, enormously, yeah. yes. I think so. Um, I mean, uh, having said that, I, I always feel uh, when I am conducting that my students are going to look at what I'm doing and go... You're not doing anything you told us to do, Sean. You know, you're looking completely different from what you're showing in the class. But hopefully that's not too much the case. And that what I'm explaining and what I use as the sort of technical skills myself um, are ones that, yeah, the students can identify, as it were, and, mm-hmm. and use for themselves too. Yeah. And then also what I want them to do is take what I am handing on to them and make it their own. You know, I don't want all my students to look like clones. I want yeah. them to all, you know, become In recent years, uh, we've seen more and more training scheme uh, opening for young female conductors. Uh, do you think these kind of initiatives might make a difference to address the gender imbalance in the industry? I think there has been an enormous, of course, obvious gender imbalance for years and years and years. And even though people then started to say, where are the women? Come on, come on, everybody, do it. Yeah. Um, it's necessarily, of course, been... Uh, an incremental and um, quite delicate process. So my wonderful colleague, um, Alice Farnham, she was the one who back in, I think, um, 2013-14 said, come on, you know, there's no point in complaining about the fact we're not doing it. We've got to get started. And she started running courses for people, you know, who hadn't actually even thought about conducting, but for women who wanted to try it out. Um, And then I've been noticing at the Royal Academy that um, a lot of women are applying to study master's conducting, but at the audition level, they're just often behind the men. And I I feel very much at master's level that I can't discriminate in favor of the women. And I don't think the women want that anyway. I think they'd hate to be on a course like this. It's the same with trying to be more diverse yeah, um, yeah. ethnically it. yeah. you don't want to force it it needs to be something that comes from the grassroots yeah. up yeah. yeah we need to provide more opportunities for then people to flourish exactly and, and, be, and, and exactly. become um, you know as good as exactly as, yeah. so um, we started actually we had some wonderful funding um, and we've started three years ago now I think um, the Sorrel program for women um, wanting to do conducting And it's designed for people who are thinking of applied at master's level. And it is designed specifically to help women be their best so that they compete absolutely um, levelly with the men at uh, audition level. And it's actually been really successful. 
And I think all it's needed really is this process of um, inviting women in and then saying, you know, it's perfectly normal to be a conductor. So yeah, it's it is working, and I think so. You've it's seen a difference, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's that's great. Yeah. That's really good. Uh, you mentioned that you won the Leeds conducting competition. Um, do you feel that has been a good way for you to make contacts in, in uh, the industry and start your career? And would you advise young people to apply for this kind of competition? Competitions are great if you approach them in the right way, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I was very lucky to even be accepted into the competition. I remember, so my lovely Russian teacher actually wrote to David Lloyd-Jones, who himself is a Russian speaker, mm. a beautiful letter saying, you know, although Sean hasn't had any professional experience, I really feel it'd be a great opportunity for her and so on and so on. And David agreed, basically. I think if you go into a competition knowing that they can be very fickle, that you may not get past the first round, even if you're fantastic, um, but that you've really learned the music in a way that is a tremendous investment for you as a conductor or any, any other field as well, if you're a pianist or a violinist or singer, um, then I think it doesn't matter in the end then, you know, what happens in the competition circumstances because, you know, you can have a daft moment in the 15 minutes you've got to actually be brilliant. Um, or, and I often say this to people who are applying here, for example, they say, well, why didn't you give me a place? And I'm just saying, look, I think you're doing really well. It's just that the competition this year was of such a level that, you know, one person just pipped you to the post. I think if you've really prepared well, you will then walk away with a lot more in your pocket in terms of what you've learned and, um, you know, probably how you develop because you're, I, I, what I found was, As soon as you think of a panel actually really looking carefully and listening to what you're doing, my goodness, you start to think in detail. Absolutely, you start thinking, gosh, you know, I'd really better take care of, yeah, is that really mezzo piano and not piano? And how do I, you know, and will they think I'm really stupid if I haven't looked at the bases at that moment? So you, you know, you do become much more sensitive to what you're doing. And mm -hmm. um, that in itself could be really helpful, I think, and, and make you go up a level in terms of your your studies so um, they can be a good thing and of course if you do well even if you don't win um, you've been seen if you had one tip to give uh, young people who are thinking about embarking on the career as a conductor what would that be it can be more than one but um, okay. yeah I'd like to say to anyone who's thinking of being a conductor, and also the parents of people who might be thinking of being a conductor, just do it. Go for any opportunity. You know, it doesn't matter how basic, how unpaid, how even how far away it might be um, in terms of, you know, you managing. I remember going on dark evenings, and this is probably not a great idea, to uh, Blackburn Call Society, for example, you know, taking a train to this city I'd never been to and trying to work with a group of people I'd never met. And it was absolutely terrifying. But every opportunity allows you to grow and you'll learn something and you'll learn some more music. As I mentioned before, I think in Britain, we've got this lovely do-it-yourself attitude. So if you've got friends who might play for you in any circumstances, um, you know, invite them to come and do something. You know, I used to have concerts in my local church and my mum used to make tea for the orchestra you know and loads of people crowding into our house and we'd have sandwiches and cups of tea and then go and give a concert and be brave and you know get out there because 
the lovely thing about starting conducting is that um, you know you are doing something because you've got a good idea or an idea and you want the music and I think that's the driving force for all of us as conductors um, and uh, as you go on you know you'll find that you can learn the music more thoroughly that you begin to understand how to use your hands more effectively and gradually you'll perhaps take some courses but it's good to just just get a start and see what it's like. There might not be a typical day as a conductor but give people a sense of what the life of a conductor is. I imagine there must be quite a lot of travel and um, being a freelance artist as well like is there things that you think people should know about? Um, <laughs> so I think yeah being a freelance musician or conductor um, has its upsides in that you're not involved in the day-to-day -day running and all the tangles that any orchestra or opera company or ensemble are dealing with, you know, especially to do with all the fundraising you need to do and so on. So you're in a lovely position in that you're invited, you go along and you give a concert or work in the opera. Um, the downside, of course, is that you don't have an opportunity to get to know people very well. Uh, sometimes you're going to an orchestra you don't know and if they're not very friendly you can't always work out whether it's you or them um, and then that's the moment where you've got to keep holding the music up as being the most important thing that all of you are involved in I think yeah there's a lot of traveling there's a lot of organization I think you've got to quite like your own company because actually the biggest thing that conductors do is study scores And although some conductors are brilliant at doing it really quickly, and I think the top conductors, the people like Baron Boyne, who've got photographic memory, Abado apparently did, they can play through a piece once and then they can play it from memory afterwards. Amazing. Mm -mm. But most people can't do that. I can't do that. Um, so it takes time to learn music. And even if you can learn the basics of a piece very quickly, really thinking about it so you've got something to offer the players when you come to them. Um, just takes time and that's why conductors get better as they get older mm -hmm. and that's why you know when you're 70 you might actually know something about the music because you've <laughs> yes. done it and you've you yes. know, absorbed it and thought about it and done it again um, and then there are all the other sides to it as well um, so if you are a gregarious person and you love the company that's lovely too because when you're actually working you know and the musicians are there everybody um, you know it can be quite a festive atmosphere and that's lovely too mm -hmm. what do you think is the best thing about being a, a conductor? Oh gosh, okay, the best thing about being a conductor is probably that feeling when you are really in tune with the orchestra or the ensemble or the opera that you're doing and there is a moment where you feel like you're flying. It's incredible. Um, and there is this wonderful sense then that the performance is going to take wing and um, you know that you can collectively do something that has a tremendous sense of uh, power and urgency that's really going to communicate to the audience behind you. Of course, I'm in this strange position as a conductor and having the audience behind me. I can't see what they're like, but I can feel whether they're um, receiving what we're doing. And... Uh, I like to feel that um, as a conductor I'm a little bit like a sort of sounding board. The, the sound of the orchestra is coming through me and then going out behind me to the audience. And when that really happens, it's really thrilling. You've 
been listening to the Opera North Artistic Futures podcast with conductor Sean Edwards. Next time, I'll be speaking to designer Anna Yates. She's a designer for our youth company show Brindy Bar, which will be performed at the Howard Assembly Room and Sage Gates Head this winter. If you have any burning question for future guests or would like to suggest people you would like to meet, please email education at opranorth.co.uk. You can also find us on Twitter, search Opera North Education. See you next time.